Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. Listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. The United States may stake its claim as the first country to land a man on the moon, but Russia can boast that it is the first country to drill the second deepest man made hole ever recorded here on Earth. Since the early 60s, there has been more than just a space race. There has been a drill to the Earth mantle boring race. And why the mantle? Because we're told that the scientists have only a reasonable understanding of what it's made from and how it works. And the scientific riches would enrich scientists for many years. And so in 1970, Russia decided to fully enter this race to win. And they decided to dig and dig and dig as deep as they could. But unlike the moon landing, Russia achieved more than the U.S. ever did because over the next 20 years, a Russian team of scientists drilled down to a depth of 40,230 feet. That's over seven and a half miles. This hole, known as the Kola Superdeep Borehole, is only nine inches in diameter. Um, But what's interesting is the nearby residents around the dig uh, always said that they could hear the souls screaming in hell coming from the depths as the team dug deeper and deeper. But the drilling and the screaming stopped in 1992, finally, when the temperatures below as they drilled just became too hot because the drill bits melted one after another. In fact, the temperatures reached 356 degrees before they had to cease eventual operations. And despite reaching such an incredible depth, Russia still never got close to the elusive mantle. But for those of us in the sales profession, there is still a deeper hole here on Earth that we dig every day. Every day. And we dig it in our own cold calls. It's called the trust hole, and it's truly the deepest hole on earth if we fall into it. It is uh, truly inescapable. And we follow into it with our prospects when we say we are going to only innocently tell them why we're called. And then we blow past that initial trust allotment that they've given us, and we test it further, and then we finally abuse it by doing what? Pitching them your entire sales presentation versus simply building and investing the trust that they've given us and earn it into a discovery call. So in this week's episode of the Market Dominance Guys, Chris speaks of the cautionary tale that envelops all of us too frequently on our cold calls. Because if you do the right thing and say the right thing on your initial cold call, you'll have some trust built in all of seven seconds. We've talked about this before. And if you do the right next thing, that trust will be converted to sufficient curiosity for the prospect to take your discovery meeting. 
And frankly, if they're not interested in our initial pitch, the simple math of market dominance says to leave them alone. Just come back later in your list cycle and restart the process. Don't attempt to squeeze any more trust from the call because once you're out of trust, as Chris says, you're out of trust. There's no cash advance or, or check you can write to get any more because you can never climb out of the trust hole for the rest of the relationship with that particular human being. So put the hard hat on, tread lightly, and let's start exploring this week's episode entitled The First Law of Sales Holes. If you find yourself in one, stop digging. So Warren in Pitch Anything talks about four key components in any successful call that is memorable is having curiosity, humor, intrigue, and the most important one is tension. And he postulates that most weak-minded salespeople avert tension because of supplicative behavior, need for approval, want to be liked. And certainly you see that in the emails that you just talked about. And so are you postulating that email is not effective as a prospecting tool, mainly because there are no stakes for the other person? There's no tension. I can create some intrigue and curiosity maybe a little bit, but I'm not involved in this process. So, so don't use emails. Two tablets coming down the mountain from Chris Beal. Do not use emails from a cold perspective to generate your leads. You will not get to market dominance one email at a time. And it's for two reasons. One is it is absolutely less effective than other approaches. And two is your competitor might choose to use tension. The real issue with market dominance is it's, it's a relative thing. You've got to win before your competitor takes the market. Your fierce, I always call them your fiercest competitor. Whoever that is, is going to combine having the goods, having the will, and being smart enough to put together a plan of action, execute that plan of action, that competitor is your issue in terms of taking a market. So now the question isn't might. So, so here's a way that people commonly think of it. I send a bunch of emails out and I have some hoped for response rate. And I get responses either within my band of response rates I hope for or not. And I tune the emails until I get the response rate I want. And then I use those and I get some meetings and I'm getting what feels like traction, right? I am getting traction. So that's interesting. Of course, after a while, I find that that gets harder and harder because I can send emails to everybody. And once I'm sending them to everybody, then the ones who are going to reply or if I've already replied and now I'm kind of, it's too fast, right? So for any market, I can saturate the communication part, the initial communication with email too easily. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is my competitor might choose to do something that works not just at the beginning and not just for those who are kind of inherently curious and kind of social or whatever, but it works in the general case. And that is something that starts with the tension of a fear relationship. If you choose to start with fear, you're in the driver's seat, as long as you know how to convert fear into trust. So if your competitor chooses to go down the fear route, because the ultimate tension is just to inject fear into the situation. Fear is the emotion that overrides all other emotions. Ask anybody who's ever tried to jump out of an airplane. I did it a few weeks ago. Now, it didn't scare me, but my life background 
conditions me not to be afraid of stuff like that. It probably did scare me, but I don't recognize it. You know, I don't actually. It's, it's driving Ferraris, driving Ferraris, jumping out of airplanes, running up mountains. These are, yeah, this is, you know, you can condition your stuff yourself to have a different kind of response kind of envelope around stuff like that. My dad used to tell me fear is incredibly valuable. It tells people what to stay away from so they can survive. And my counter argument was great, love it in others. I'm going to substitute for fear, assessment, you know, reason, and kind of cold calculation. So that's going to be my fear. And I was very deliberate about it. I said, I'm going to choose something else to do the work of fear because I don't trust fear. My view was in the modern world, we're going to fear things that it doesn't make sense to fear. And if we're wise, we let fear play a role to create tension in a relationship that we can then resolve. All stories require tension. And if you think about story writing, and every deal is a story, every new customer relationship is a story. We start with somebody wants something. Then we have to have some obstacle. Something is in the way of somebody getting something, right? The somebody wants something, we call that our hero in the story. And the things that get in the way, we have a bunch of names for, but they're the challenges in which the plot of the story is that the hero is going to go through a series of adventures. And those adventures are going to ultimately result in either the hero getting what they want, those are the happy stories, or not, which are the tragedies, right? So Romeo and Juliet, we can work our way through that story. Somebody wanted something and everybody ended up dead. That's why we call that a tragedy, right? Along the way, they almost got it. In fact, they almost got it and then ungot it and then almost got it again. And then damn, everybody was dead. All because of a little communication error, right? Uh, very telling, actually, when you think about it. They were in a situation where the way they lived was at the edge where fear could be reality because that was back when, as we saw in the opening of the play, someone gets killed and they get killed just for saying something. Yeah, that was back in right. those days when you, yeah. the, the discipline of society was exercised at the tip of a sword among individuals. So it was a different world. We don't live in that world anymore. So my choice, and I think, frankly, I think if you can pull it off, it's not easy to do, by the way, but if you can pull off substituting for as much of your own fear, substituting reason and testing that and getting help, having people give you good information, knowing how to get information, knowing when you're going too fast and you need to slow down and think, knowing when it's time to act right now and you better do something because that's what reason tells you to do. Now, sometimes reason actually creates urgency, which is something that folks often don't think. Right? So if you want to dominate markets, you have to be the adult in the room. And if you're the scared person who's just running around going, oh my God, I'm not going to make my quarter. I'm not going to make my number. I might get fired. You can't dominate markets. All you can do is get lucky a few times and then eventually something's going to catch up. Whereas your opponent, a serious player who wants to dominate this market, who, put, who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to put fear to work for me. I'm going to let the fear that's inevitable in a cold call, not a cold email outreach, not walking up to somebody at a conference, by the way. There's no fear in that. Because you can see the person. They're a visible stranger. Visible stranger. Mm -hmm. If a person mm -hmm. walks up to you and they hold their hand out to shake your hand, saying, I'm unarmed, <laughs> right. then we're good. We don't fear mm -hmm. that person. We may not like them. We may, we may be thinking, I've got something else to do. There's, and so we can use a conference, for instance, in order to do useful things to advance our business but we don't have the ultimate control position. The control position 
is to engender fear in the other person and then resolve that fear as quickly as possible. And it's, yeah. it's a place from which you cannot lose, but you have to develop the skill in which to do it. And then you have to not blow it because you're going to take fear and turn it into trust. And the trust is a currency. As you spend trust, you don't get more of it. <laughs> you have to keep building more. So you get a little bit of trust. And now what do you spend it on? You spend it on curiosity. And once you get curiosity, you've rolled the boulder off the cliff at that point. All boulders rolled off cliffs get to the bottom. You just don't know what the path is going to be. That's why it's curiosity. So now you have another problem. If you over-engineer the next part, that is, once the curiosity turns into discovery, you want to have a period of, okay, approach yeah. me. That's why you want to set the meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this set the meeting, hold the meeting is so important compared to have the meeting in the ambush call. You can never climb out of the trust hole. For the rest of the relationship with that human being, you will never climb all the way out of the trust hole that you put yourself in or the mistrust hole. I always tell people it's pretty simple. If you do the right thing, you'll have some trust in seven seconds. If you do the right next thing, that trust will be converted to sufficient curiosity to take the meeting. If it isn't converted, leave them alone and come back later. Restart the process. Don't attempt to keep squeezing. Once you're out of trust, you're out of trust. (laughs) There's nothing more to spend. There's no credit card that you can pull out and go, don't worry, I'll pay you back later. You can trust me later. I'm going to do something right now that will make you not trust me. But it's okay. We'll get it back later when you see how wonderful my offer is. Yeah. About how wonderful your offer is. (laughs) But that's what happens, right? You're going to be, we're going to be rolling in trust when you take this 30-minute demo call for me that, hey, we have time right now. Let's just jump right into it. Exactly. Exactly. So you need to have the horse approach you before you try to put the bridle on it. That's, yeah. you just have to have it come to you. And that means you need a separation. And you actually want things like, you want there not to be a 100% show rate. That's actually your best qualifier. Your best qualifier really is, you have a declaration of a willingness to do something, but the intention to actually do it, to overcome all those obstacles, then you have a new hero, by the way. The new hero is your prospect and their journey is to come to visit your land, your world. They're going to come into your house and you're going to share something with them. Hopefully something of value. You're going to teach them something that is going to help them understand their world economically. It's going to help them understand their world emotionally. And that's going to help them understand their world strategically. The three things that we need to be able to get help with in order to navigate through the world. You're going to give them that stuff, right? But they have to come into your house. Connect and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect and Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect and Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. So come on, give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell. Visit connectandsell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. And so they're going to come to your house, which is the discovery meeting. If they're not ready to come to your house, 
fabulous. Go push the button for that 15 minutes and have more conversations. <laughs> this notion that, oh my God, nobody showed a meeting. They no-showed a meeting. That's wonderful. That's great. The ones that no-showed are the ones you weren't going to move further with right now anyway. Now call them back because maybe it was something that's just in their world that came up and they're going to love you for calling them back and saying, you know, we had this meeting on the calendar for the 15th at 8. Clearly something came up with you. I remember you said you were a morning person. How about if we do Friday? Can you go even earlier, maybe 6.30, 7? Whatever it is, it's okay to do all that stuff. It's also okay if they don't show. Mm -hmm. Qualification before discovery is an error, but there's one form of natural qualification you get for free without even having to work. Do they show up at the meeting or not? And being petulant about a no-show is ridiculous. You were offered a gift. They didn't show. That's a gift of time. And to be all pissed off about it is just to be a child. So what's a good, I asked Burmeister, it's a common question I would ask when I was at Stormwind, was what's a good show rate? Or what's a good, what's an acceptable no-show rate? So 60, um, 60% is a good show rate. 60%. So, good, so, that's a good so, show rate. so the, son of, the son of man himself, Jesus used connect and sell. It's impossible to get 80, 90, 100% show rate. It's just not, it's not possible. It's wrong. It's possible it's wrong. to do it, that's but it's a better, wrong. That's a better way of putting it. It's, it's wrong. wrong. Jesus is a lot smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. I mean, Jesus would have been so happy if 40% of all those who could have showed up but weren't really going to take it seriously. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, he he had the same problem we have, right? There's only so much time on earth to get the job done. And we all have that problem. It's funny, maybe you planned this, Chris, is that he had three years to get to market dominance. It's, maybe he planned it. Three years, as far as we can tell, is the replacement cycle for everything. If you're going to take up a, a new set of health habits, how we started this conversation, and you're really going to be able to say, okay, now I do things differently. So say you decide you're crazy and you decided to become a barefoot endurance runner. The time during which you're going to actually stick to it, if you're serious about it, before you replace it with something else, probably about three years. If you go past three years, you're going to be really hard to sell to. But for the most part, we turn over our cars, we turn over our jobs, we turn over the system that we bought to do X, Y, and Z, which is the thing most folks are selling, whatever it is, our habits, Mm -hmm. we turn them over about once every three years. And so if you want to dominate a market, you have to eat that cycle. That cycle is built into the market. It's not you, it's them. Yep. And you got to yep. the ones that are going to go today, the ones that are going to go a quarter from now, the ones that are going to go, you got to go through 12 quarters. It's yeah. just the way yeah. life is. That's a fact of the world. And maybe your market's weird. People always tell me the markets are different. My market's different. The whole thing's going to be over in 12 months. Really? Show me some examples of where that happened, where you know all the facts. Well, you actually know when they started, when you actually know, not the news stories, not the dressed up documentary, not the BS, how it actually went there. Go back even to one of the huge, huge successes. Look at the first three years. That's what it took. It takes three years, right? During that three years, you're going to manufacture trust over and over and over and over and over again. You don't ever get off the hook. You never get to go, oh, look. We're so good at this, we're 15 months in. We don't have to be in the trust manufacturing business anymore. Sorry, you got to keep manufacturing trust at a steady flow rate. The flow rate is represented as 
units. The unit is discovery calls held per unit time, per quarter or whatever, with folks who are ostensibly in your target market, because that's what you're trying to dominate. And your target market is always identified based on publicly available information. Why? That's competitive. Because you and your competitors have yeah. access to the same publicly available information. And that is the unified field theory as far as you're concerned about dominating a market. The math works out. The math is the math and the, and the gluon, the hidden particle, the thing that, like the discovery of quarks, right? Couldn't figure out how atoms worked until somebody finally came up with this crazy-ass idea about quarks. And then the whole key to quarks is, well, what keeps them together anyway? Why don't protons just float? You know, like as far as we can tell, protons will last the length of, of the universe. Why don't they decay? Well, they just have this peculiar relationship among the quarks, which, you know, the, the, it's like we're just going to play the same game back and forth. Here, you get the blue on, give it back to me, you get it. You know, they don't get bored on that game, whereas everybody else yeah. occasionally they'll kind of slip one out and, and there'll be a decay that occurs and something will become too thin. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, the unified field theory is this. The essential fundamental particle, so to speak, of this entire thing is trust. And the certainty is fear. And so what you do is you trigger fear, manufacture trust, turn that into, into curiosity, turn the curiosity into commitment, the commitment into action. And you just run that cycle over and over and over. You run at the lowest cost you can, at as tight a target as you can. And this is the number one reason you must never qualify in a cold call. Because you screw the whole thing up. When you qualify, you're saying, my target market is not my target market. It's actually a subset of that that I'm going to discover, but I'm not going to discover it during discovery. So I'm going to try to discover it when there's not, an, I'm going to spend some of my trust currency to try to make yeah. this person go away. Whereas all I really have to do is set the meeting and have them not show up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so simple. So trigger fear to manufacture trust. Yes. And then spend um, that trust on curiosity. Spend that trust, spend that trust on curiosity and repeat. And then that curiosity becomes commitment Right, but not yet action, and then the, and the commitment becomes action, and there's a attenuation rate on each one of those. Right, the curiosity doesn't always become commitment. It only becomes commitment maybe six percent of the time, seven percent of the time, for a whole bunch of reasons. Right, you've just injected yourself into somebody else's life. Curiosity is actually relatively weak as a motivator, but it's the best we can do. So trigger fear, manufacture trust, spend that trust on curiosity. And then hope, manufacturer, spark, catalyze that curiosity to become commitment. Yeah. And that chemical reaction, curiosity becoming commitment, is probably very heavy on tone and language. Yes. Right? The choice of my words, the pacing, the performance piece. And luck. Um, so once, and I, luck. once I optimize, now I'm down to luck. Luck number one, timing. Am I going to get a meeting? Let's try this. So say somebody cold calls me on June 27th, 2020. I'm getting married on July 5th. Following that wedding, there are going to be two days probably in the penthouse over there at the hotel right across the water, which is where we're getting married. Mm -hmm. Then there's going to be a month in Iceland. Then there's Iceland. 
Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Then there's going to be an additional month in Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and the Shetlands. Then there's going to be three weeks in the Nordics, and then there's going to be a month on, or, or two weeks on London's West End seeing plays, and then I'll consider a meeting. The point is, no matter how much curiosity you get out of me, right? I could be like thinking you're, you're, oh, you're shut down until Thanksgiving, basically. Shut down until Thanksgiving, and that's just luck on your part as mm -hmm. the cold caller. And that's the real world. We don't know what somebody is available to do. And curiosity is very weak as a motivator. It's just the strongest motivator that we can find. And the curiosity can be about, about economics, can be about making more money, not losing money, reducing risk, all economic concepts. It can be about emotions. It can be about reducing frustration or reducing fear. Very occasionally, it can be about the emotion that we call greed. It can sometimes be about envy, but usually it's just frustration or fear. The twin emotions that we get to use in business regularly are frustration and fear. You're frustrated with the way things are going or you're afraid a bad thing's going to happen. That's kind of it. That's it. But you're saying, Chris, that because of this intersection, this, con this confluence, this convergence of luck, timing, tone, choice of words, if I have that and that is performing at a high level, I still can only expect to get one out of 12, one out of 13 proceeding to accepting a discovery call. Yes. At the beginning. At the beginning. And that number gets better over time because I'm, I'm actually taking those out of the market and yes. I'm compressing the remaining market into the remaining quarters. So the concentration goes up a little bit over time. And I'm also improving my approach slightly because now it's, I'm talking to you for the second time. And so I get to start, if I have an aggregated trust, I get to start from the trust position. I don't have to go through the whole fear bit. When I call you the second time and I say, Corey, when we spoke on August 20th, all I have to do is say that. When we spoke on August 20th, you said whatever. You immediately trust me because I'm not a stranger. You might not remember the conversation, but, but you have to make a decision now. I'm either a yeah. liar who's pretending that we spoke on August 20th, and that's way too specific. Only the greatest con men in the world would ever say that, right? Ooh. Or, wow, I'm actually not a stranger. So the first, this is why everything always comes, like, this is the weirdest math, right? The funnel Ooh. is the concentration of effect on the first seven seconds of the cold call. Because that's where you have the invisible stranger effect, which guarantees fear, which allows you to make the move to trust within seven seconds. After that, don't blow it, right? Yeah. You're fishing. This is like fishing for, for a fish of unknown size and strength. The strength of your line is always exactly the same. I'm fishing on seven-pound test line. Okay, well, if it's a big-ass fish, I better let it run a little bit. Right? The big-ass fish is the one who won't take the meeting now. Yes. So I have to adjust how much tension I put on the line, how hard I try to get him in the meeting, depending on how strong the fish is. And I don't know. So all I can do is ask the fish, you going to come with me? Ooh, um, I guess not. Catch you later. Right? Mm -hmm. So you, then you go catch them again. You, do, you play catch and release over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So the bulk of this is what's ironic about it. The bulk of the market is captured through follow-up calls, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth conversations. But the key skill is the cold call. 
because follow-up calls can't be executed until you have a cold call. And if the cold call isn't executed in a way that you leave them with the possibility of trust, when you call them back in the follow-up and say, hey, Corey, when we spoke on August 20th, you yeah. said that you were headed to whatever, to do whatever, or you didn't have time for a conversation with me. Even if you hang up on me, by the way, I'm going to say that, because you didn't have time for a conversation. Otherwise, you would have talked to me. So this is the strange thing is cold calling itself only generates this very modest yield. If you generate 5% conversation a meeting in cold calls, you're doing really well. There's only 8.5% of the markets in play in any quarter anyway. Oh, right, right. Mm -hmm. So right. you're four and, a, four and a quarter is halfway. So you're above 50%. And above 50%, you can dominate the market. But you have to persist because the market is not ready. They're not ready because your product's new or whatever, but they're also not ready because it takes three years for the market as a whole to consider a new offering because of the replacement cycle of existing solutions. So you gotta to talk to people over and over. The skill required to have a second conversation is very modest. The skill required to execute the first seven seconds of a cold call is monumental, it's huge. There's nothing easy about any part of it. The point of the call where, say it's us, I'll do the connect and sell one because I'm familiar with it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do the whole thing from scratch. I don't know if we've done this from scratch, but I'll do it from scratch. That's good, that's good, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So I say, I, I haven't heard your voice, right? It's connect and sell call. So I just have a beep in my ear. Mm -hmm. So I say, hey, this is Chris from Connect and Sell. Corey, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I call? And you're going to go. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, Corey, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone or even using the phone at all. And the reason I reached out to you today is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? And you're going to say something along the lines of, if you're interested, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, Tell me. Yeah, more. yeah. We're high. And I'm going to say, you know, Corey, we've learned the hard way that an ambush conversation like this just isn't a fair setting to talk about something this important. Are you a morning person? How's your Wednesday? But what is it? What is it? Is it X? Is it Y? Is it? Will, will folks try to come back to you a second time? Or that's sure. so strong of a response that they, most of the time, they'll just say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll bite. Well, the reason for that response being worded like that is it makes it two things perfectly clear. Remember when I told you I know I'm an interruption? I'm reminding you that I agree with you that I'm an interruption. And if you're trying to change this to a conversation about what it is that I'm offering, which is not what I told you I was willing to do, by the way. It wasn't the deal. The deal was I'd tell you why I called. The reason I reached out to you today is to get 15 minutes on your calendar, not to explain what we do. Now I'm telling you why I can't explain, I shouldn't explain what we do, it's wrong. It's ethically wrong, it's not fair. It's not fair to you and it's not fair to our offer because it's too important. So I'm establishing myself immediately as your peer. We're on the same page, we're looking to do the same thing which is have whatever happens next be what should happen next. And certainly what's unfair shouldn't happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, so Chris Voss talks about the F word, says you should almost never use it. And I agree with him because as soon as you imply that the other person's being unfair, the amount of reactance you're going to get is crazy. But if you're saying, if I were to do that, it would be unfair to you and to me, then it's kind of okay. So that's the proper way to use fair. Yes. Is in the potential negative connotation, the self-deprecating connotation 
versus fair enough or does that sound fair? Exactly. When you use it the other way, you're basically saying, you know what, I'm about to accuse you of being unethical. I mean, fairness is an ethical term, not a moral term. When you accuse somebody of being unethical, you're saying, you're not saying, hey, you violated a moral. You're saying you're a bad person. So that's been in vogue for a number of years. And now you're saying that it's time to retire that word. They- Always has been. It's a very dangerous word to use. And it's used unskillfully yeah. a lot. When uh, somebody says that's fair, think about when somebody says that to you. You say whatever it is you say. And they say, that's fair. What are they really saying? They're saying, they're not saying anything about fairness, right? They're saying, I'm going to withhold my assessment of what you said until it's convenient for me. They're refusing to engage with you at that point. When somebody says that's fair, that's simply, I'm not ready to engage. And people say it all the time. When they say that's right, they're saying, I'm ready to engage. We've now made progress. And this is something we both agree on. It's objective. That's why it's that's right rather than you're right. When they say you're right, they're saying, at this point, I can't defeat you in this argument based on what I know and the position I'm in. So I'm going to say you're right so I can get away from you. So there's a big difference between that's fair, that's right, and you're right. And Mm. folks who use them interchangeably get in trouble and they have no idea why. And a morass at that point. Yeah, I think it emanated from Sandler, right? I think I know Matson uses it a lot, but I think even David Sandler used fair, right, in a lot of his early recordings from kind of the uh, late 80s, early 90s or so in some of his screenplays. So but that's interesting how... It's super desirable as a state, and therefore it's, you're playing with fire when you're playing with fair, the other F word. I love it, yeah. So, but it's okay in this case because there's a little fire is needed. When you ask me... For, you know, for more information. Well, it turns out you're not really asking me for more information about curi- from your curiosity. You're of two minds. One is you might want to know a little more. The other is you want to say, we're set. You want me to tell you enough so that you can say, we're set, and then you're out of the conversation through the back door. I don't want to let you out through the back door because I think it's wrong. I think you'll benefit. I think you'll learn one, two, or three things of immense value to you if you just come and attend the meeting. I believe that deeply. That's my product is the meeting. I believe in my product. I think you'll learn something about the potential for reducing your costs of having conversations. I believe you'll learn something about the potential for having your life as a manager be easier because your people (laughs) do something that you want them to do. And I believe you'll learn about the potential for dominating markets or getting on a path to dominate a market, which is fundamentally going to allow you to keep your job or if you own the company to survive. I believe you'll learn about those things regardless of whether we ever do business together. I believe in my product. That's beautiful. Product is the meeting. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys 
or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.